Not a matter of if, but when a crisis could rock your world. I'm Rashini Rajkumar, crisis strategist, licensed attorney, and host of The Crisis Files. In each case file, we explore a real-world crisis or a rip-from-the-headlines challenge. My crisis squad and I are here to find solutions. We also talk to community leaders who find themselves in the midst of challenges. In all cases, our suggestions are meant to help you handle your own crisis or prevent crises from happening. We do not provide legal, financial, medical, or PR advice for particular situations, but strongly recommend you seek out professionals to help with your specific needs. Today, I've got Jonathan Weinhagen with me. As president and CEO of the Minneapolis Regional Chamber, he deals daily with challenges faced by businesses large and small. He's here to talk about an ongoing challenge for the work world since the phenomenon we call COVID, and that is remote work. In the case file, Rethinking Remote. As employers are pushing for more in-person work, employees are pushing back. A tight labor market has given employees the upper hand. Now managers are struggling with long-term implications of hybrid work arrangements. For cities, the lack of workers downtown means fewer customers for businesses that depend on foot traffic, restaurants, service providers, retail. Jonathan, none of this is new to you. Absolutely. Great to be here um, and great to talk about something that I talk about darn near every day. And that is, what does the future of work look like? We've been talking for the last 24 to 30 months through the pandemic that the future of work is going to be flexible. We know that, but we're really at an inflection point. As I talk to CEOs and business owners, they want their people back in their buildings. As I talk to city leaders, they want people back in their urban centers and in their shopping malls and in their restaurants. But as we hear from employees, they want to hold on to that flexibility. They want to stay at home. They want to walk their dog at 930 in the morning. So there's a really interesting tension. And while all of this is happening, we've got this labor force participation that is unprecedentedly low our unemployment, 1.8%, basically full employment. So employees truly do have the upper hand on so many fronts. Um, So we have to chart a path forward and we have to choose what the future of our region is going to be. Do you have a sense that employees are not fearful of losing their jobs if they challenge their bosses? Yeah, absolutely. Employees right now have all of the opportunity in the world. There are two job openings for every person in the workforce today in our state. Think about that, two to one. So we're hearing from managers that they're worried about employees leaving. We hear about quiet quitting. We hear about this great resignation. All of those things are very real. I talked to a Fortune 500 leader just in the last couple of weeks who suggested that mandating some regiment of in-person work could cost them up to 30% of their employee population. Wow. So that two to one stat you said for the state of Minnesota probably is playing out all over the United States. That's right. This is a national issue. Unemployment, obviously, acutely felt here. But nationally, we've never seen employment at levels like we're seeing today. What are your thoughts for not only the costs, but some of the changes corporations and even small business will have to make in order to not only attract, but then keep their employees? I think there's a couple of things to think about. So I'll start from a place of cities and how cities should be thinking about this. If our goal is to stand in an arena sometime in the future, whether it's 23, 24, 25, and put up a big number on the screen and cheer, um, as we always do talking about the employment level in our city, and have it resemble something like it did on March 13th, 14th, 15th of 2020, 
I think we're going to lose because the future of work is going to be different. If we can think about incentivizing people to come back downtown, if we can think about incentivizing people to live downtown, which, by the way, in a flexible remote work environment, people who are living downtown are working downtown some of their days. Those are the things that are going to create a sense of vibrancy in our city. And then we have to start thinking about city building and region building differently. I'll take restaurants, for example. If you have a lease with a restaurant and a building today, it was likely structured on maybe five breakfasts, five lunches, and five happy hour and dinner services. You know, today that looks very different. I think building owners as businesses have to start thinking about hospitality in their building as an amenity, the same way they think about fitness centers, the same way they think about bike storage facilities, the same way they think about all of the other amenities. And we're just going to have to, again, think differently about what that built environment looks like. And then companies, are going to need to think beyond you know, the paycheck as an incentive for people to be in a place. So daycare facilities on site, like you say, health clubs, uh, the ease, maybe even dry cleaning services, things like that. So I recently had the honor of emceeing an event called the Minnesota Cup. So these awards are given thousands of dollars to entrepreneurs, startups, sometimes they're years in and they're looking at that next stage funding. And one of the companies that came in second overall is working with AI and virtual reality robots. More robots for kind of some of the mechanized functions. What are you seeing? Who are you talking with? What are some of the leaders in this space? And is that actually going to help humans or help or hurt us? So a little bit of both, as is often the case. Automation and augmentation are going to be the name of the game as we move into this future. Um, Accenture did a really interesting study just before the pandemic, suggesting that upwards of 30 to 40 percent of the jobs in our region could be automated or augmented. That was actually something I would tell you scared me. 36 months ago. Today, it's something that I think we need to embrace because we don't have the people and the talent and the access to that work to continue to grow this region. So we're going to need to lean into that. We're going to need to start talking about what does that look like? You're seeing it in hospitality every single day. More self-service, more automation in how we interface with a restaurant and get food delivered to a table uh, because we just have scarcity of people. You know, you talked about childcare a huge issue. Childcare affordability is in crisis mode in this country. The Fed did a report in February of 2021 that would suggest that 2.9% of women left the workforce during the pandemic. Men are back up to almost full employment as compared to 18 months ago. Women are still in that 2% vacancy directly related to childcare. Right. And women were already have inequity in the workplace, right. whether it's uh, services or actual pay. So women don't need another hit. I'll just say that as a woman. A hundred percent. And as a region that boasts the highest female workforce participation in the country, as we start to talk about these things like unemployment, it's mission critical. If we want to continue to grow this region, to grow this our city, to grow our state, we need an all of the above approach. And there are so many barriers right now to keeping people in the workforce. I want to get into a couple more key issues. You mentioned hospitality. What I'm finding as someone who loves eating out and have been eating out since I was a little kid with my parents, I'm finding that it's catch and catch can with restaurants and the level of service. Now, I like a paper menu. I don't want it. I have to, you know, have it on my phone and squint to read it and all that. 
And I also want service. I don't want to order on the phone. I was at a patio restaurant this summer, and it's one of my favorite restaurants. But what COVID has done to it is you actually order on your phone. Now, real people bring you your food, but there's a loss of connection there. There's a loss of the atmosphere. And I go to that place. It used to be one of my go-tos. And I go there infrequently to eat there, pretty much never anymore, except for that one time. And if I do go there, I do takeout. I tend to then frequent the places that are still doing tableside. You know, they're coming to me, giving me a drink order, bringing me my food, all of that thing. So what are you hearing from the hospitality folks? And my guess is restaurant and hotel owners and managers are also frustrated. Absolutely. It's a bit of a mixed bag. They're all responding to the crisis at hand, and that's just not enough people. So I think in many cases, they didn't wake up one morning and say, hey, we should completely reinvent how we deliver a customer service experience. They woke up one day and said, I only have one server for this shift, and we need to do this differently. I think there's a sincere desire from the restaurant owners that I talk to, general managers across the city. They want to provide that level of service. They want something that resembles you know, that pre-pandemic world. And they have customers that want that too. There's certainly a segment of the population that enjoys and appreciates that zero interface. If we could actually figure that out at like furniture stores or Home Depot, where I never have to talk to somebody, that'd be awesome. (laughs) But in that hospitality space, to your point, that's what people are longing for. They want to be waited on. They want to be served. They want to have that relationship. And the last thing I would add on that is it is a community. When I think about the places that I frequent, you get to know these folks. And that's one of the things that during the pandemic really struck me. The number of people who like, I felt like they're part of my family. We'd go to a restaurant, we'd have a glass of wine and I, I would get an update on their kids. And like, we lost a couple of years and we're going to start losing that if we don't have that human interaction. And speaking of human interaction, it is such a big part of company culture. And culture is a reason why people stay or go or want to get in on a certain company. So what kind of impact is this hybrid or work from home arrangement doing to company culture? It's absolutely having an impact on company culture and as importantly on mentorship. My father-in-law runs a, a large company in town and I had the opportunity I'll call it an opportunity uh, to be with him and my mother-in-law and our kids uh, over spring break in the midst of the pandemic. And I'll never forget him getting off a phone call. And he was a little bit kind of befuddled. He had talked to somebody that used to sit right outside of his office, a younger, you know, 23, 24-year-old, um, early in their career professional. He said, you know, I haven't talked to this person in the last 18 months. And I used to stop by their cube every day, know what they were up to, know what they were into. And I've lost that. Learn from each other. Cross-generational mentoring. So I think it's twofold. One, we have to figure out ways to get people together because that organic engagement needs to happen. It's so critical. It's so important. You learn so much. And we have to be really intentional in a flexible and remote environment to how we do that mentorship, how we do that connection, how we create culture. I think it's both and. If I could wave a magic wand, I'd have my whole team back in the office together because I just think there's an energy that you can't recreate. You cannot. In a virtual environment. You cannot recreate it. What are your colleagues around the United States saying? Because you're flying all over, you're seeing people, you're hearing certainly these challenges are not unique to the Minneapolis Twin Cities market or even to the state of Minnesota. But is anyone getting it or doing it right in another part of the country? 
nobody's doing it right. I think there is this like growing frustration and every day that ticks along, the tension is building. More and more managers and CEOs and business leaders want people together. They're seeing that loss of culture. They're seeing the loss of connectivity. They're also working to respond to the forces of their workforce. So I think we're steamrolling towards an inflection point. I couldn't tell you exactly when that's going to happen, but I would say in the next 18 months to three years, we're going to have a little bit of a reckoning with regards to what the future of work looks like. And that's going to shake itself out. I also think that different cities are responding differently. We're a large, major metropolitan area, as many of our competitive peer cities are. But there's a huge opportunity for suburbs and for more rural areas to think about attracting people. You talk about remote work. There are jobs today that are 100% remote. We couldn't have imagined that three years ago. And it's creating some some real instability in the workforce and in the market. So this is also, maybe we can look at that as a positive of the pandemic times, that we did get tech that it was improved. Myself, as an executive and crisis coach, I was always seeing clients around the country and the globe. But now that's much more commonplace. So where I have a client group of 10 people that are doing individual coaching with me around the country from one company, but they're in all the different time zones. That would have almost been impossible to even imagine to think about doing it pre-COVID, right? That's right. And to think about just sourcing different talent from different places. Right. The opportunity to say, hey, you might want to live in New York and and work for a company in Minneapolis or vice versa. We're hearing a lot of that. It's creating some interesting challenges for human resources departments who have traditionally tiered wages related to a community, right? It's more expensive to work in Minneapolis than it is to work in Rochester, Minnesota, or in some rural parts of the community. It's certainly less expensive to live here than it is to live in New York. So all of those things are are So challenges, but maybe some interesting opportunities. Let's talk a little bit about solutions. So it sounds like when a company makes a decision, and I have a client who's in the healthcare space, she is the chief human resources officer and her stance on what she's advised and what they're living is, you know, make a choice. Either you say, okay, you're all in and you're all out on one of these things. But do you recommend that companies just set clear policies? And then if you're an employee, you take it or leave it. Absolutely. I mean, clarity is so important. And the quicker you come to a decision point, the better. I think we've spent a really long time kind of kicking the can down the road. I'm living in this space of uncertainty. I always talk about this with regards to our elected leaders and others. Like uncertainty is the greatest challenge for a business leader. So business leaders today need to to create that certainty for their employee populations and then manage through the fallout and adapt quickly. I will tell you, we worked to set a structured schedule at the chamber with my team of 30 people and received some pretty forward pushback on the rigidity of it. So we adapted. We listened to our people and we made a change and we created some new clarity. And I think that's going to be the name of the game for the next couple of of years. But at least you tried. That's right. And finally, the data. It's important, it seems, that you might have an inkling of something, but you really need to look at the data. In your case, you set some policies, you got reaction, and then you adapted. So it could be data that's as simple as that, feedback from employees. Yeah, and I think that, you know, as leaders, we take a lot of anecdotal data in and we make a lot of assumptions. Um, until you make a decision, you don't really know how your employee population is going to respond. And even internal surveying is imperfect. And then measure productivity. Don't just assume. Do some measuring. 
All right, well, Jonathan Weinhagen, so great to talk with you. He is the president and CEO of the Minneapolis Regional Chamber. Always a joy. We'll have him back. But it is great to get your take on all of these forces that are in play and not look at it as the sky is falling, but maybe some opportunities ahead that we hadn't dreamed of before. That's right. Today's Crisis Brief is brought to you by Golf Public. Number one, set clear policies for employees to understand when and why you want them in the office. Your gut instinct isn't enough. Back up your plan with data and strategy. Number two, offer training to your managers who may not have experience leading a remote or hybrid team. As you receive feedback, adapt. And number three, seek out trusted resources for best practices and latest data. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Minneapolis Regional Chamber, and Small Business Administration, plus more, have great information. Reputation issues can arise quickly and unexpectedly. Prepare and plan before a crisis strikes with Goff Public, an award-winning public relations and public affairs agency. Your best defense is a crisis-ready culture that helps you spot potential issues, act swiftly, and reflects your brand's values while building trust with your audiences. Learn more at GoffPublic.com. Thank you to my podcast co-producer, Tom Hamilton of Undertone Music and associate producer, Kim Inslee. Want advice for your crisis? Email me, Rashini at RashiniGroup.com. That's R-O-S-H-I-N-I at RashiniGroup.com. I'm Rashini Rajkumar. Join me next time on The Crisis Files. Crisis Files.